Today on Forefront Radio, we'll have a conversation with Illinois State Senator Daniel Biss, who will give us some insight into the chaos and hopefully shed some light on what we can do as a sector to help our state get a budget that adequately funds services. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Succinctly, if possible, tell us why this year is so different than previous years of budgeting and state governing. Why is there chaos? Well, the the chaos, broadly speaking, uh, began with the beginning of the Rauner administration. And, and, you know, I want to be clear here. I don't have any illusions that things in Springfield or state government were perfect beforehand, but there was a different set of problems and a different type of chaos. The current chaos is very much a consequence of having a Republican governor with a very uh, strong set of views that he's deeply attached to, a significant Democratic majority in both chambers of the legislature that um, frankly, very strongly disagrees with his policy preferences, uh, and no path that's been identified so far to bridge that gap. Uh, this year in particular is worse because it's later. So when uh, this all began, it was in the middle of uh, the fiscal year 2015, um, and we kind of limped through the end of that fiscal year, but then when July 1st of 2015 hit, we didn't have a budget in place, and to be honest, I'm shocked at how little has changed since then, even though now we're sitting here in this room almost exactly 10 months after Illinois ceased to have any budget at all. Should we be worried about the trajectory of the relationship between the state and the nonprofit sector? Yes, uh, I am very worried about it. And I think it's important to kind of take a few steps back in time and assess how that relationship has uh, developed over the years. The state historically provided a lot of the human services uh, in-house. And over time, a decision was made to outsource an awful lot of that to not-for-profits. And some of that, candidly, was just about cost-cutting. And some of it is about the idea that community-based organizations, which are uh, deeply integrated in the neighborhoods and communities they serve, uh, have a, a ideal expertise to provide services in the, in the most appropriate and impactful way that kind of a single state uh, entity governed from Springfield might have, have difficulty doing. That's had some positive consequences along those lines, but it's, had, it's created the risk of uh, creeping disinvestment. So first the state says, well, we're going to stop providing these services and start funding not for profits that will do it for us and hopefully do it cheaper and better. Okay, well now they're going to be doing it cheaper so we'll be able to spend less and less. And then, by the way, now we're not talking about kind of the operation of state government. We're talking about a long list of medium and sometimes even small grant lines in the budget. And then, you know, hey, well, every year that we're negotiating the budget, will there be another opportunity to cut another line? And pretty soon you see two things happening. One is the obvious one, which is the state is moving away from making proper levels of investment to enable the provision of services, to enable the flourishing of those not-for-profits that are supposed to be the partners as a result of a decision made by the state. The other thing, sorry to say, but let's unpack what's meant by providing services at a lower cost. A lot of that has to do with wages. And as the state continues disinvestment, the not-for-profit sector is finding it harder and harder to pay living wages and to pay competitive wages. 
And that's bad all around. It's bad if the sector isn't able to attract people. It's bad if people in the sector aren't able to live middle-class lives. It's bad if retention is impossible. Uh, I think that we should view human service provision as a noble career, not as an act of quasi-community service to be done for a few years before getting a real job, which you have to do if you want to be able to afford, uh, afford a house. And we're not all the way there yet, but if the state continues this kind of disinvestment, we, we risk getting there. And I think that's the lens that we have to use when we assess the way in which we provide these resources. We have to view these uh, not-for-profits as partners that are doing state work. And if we make it impossible for them to do that work well, it's our work that has not been done and it's our failure that's resulted in that. We can't view that as an acceptable outcome. We have to view that as an unambiguous fail outcome. This budget impasse, is this going to cost taxpayers more in the long run? Oh, God, yes. How and why? Um, I mean, the simplest answer is the um, interest paid. The, you know, there are many vendors who are subject to the Prompt Payment Act, and the state pays high interest on uh, late bills. But there's also just, you know, hey, Poor fiscal management is is bad in the long run. So, I mean, let, let me count the ways. Well, first of all, we've been running a deficit all this time and building up debt, and that takes time to pay down. And every year that elapses during which these uh, problems aren't taken on in a sustainable way is more debt that's going to be paid down in a more painful way. But it's also things, you know, non-glamorous things like deferred maintenance on buildings and capital investments. You know, if you allow the state to crumble then you've got to rebuild it from scratch. That costs a lot of money. The other thing, of course, is that if you eliminate community-based services, you wind up uh, with a lot of, you wind up basically with two options. Either you screw people over because the community service, community-based services are gone and, the, and many people who would have been consumers of those services get nothing. That's just a morally wrong outcome. But the other possibility for many of the individuals in question is that they wind up in a much more expensive setting, whether it's an institutional care setting or the criminal justice system. There's just no financial benefit in doing that, not to mention what I would characterize as the more important question of the human uh, and, and moral consequences. So what impacts are you seeing? Are there some points you think may not be making it to the public that we don't know about? How long do you have? Um, I divide the um, most severe consequences of this problem into three categories. There's human services that we've been discussing, there's higher education, and there's the broader economy. I'll start with human services because uh, I know that's of particular importance to your uh, listeners. I don't even know where to start. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of dollars of services that have already been provided by not-for-profits pursuant to signed contracts, and yet there's no legal authority to pay uh, those providers, nor is it clear when there will be such legal authority. You see the big headline consequences, uh, for instance, the uh, laying off of 750 Lutheran Social Services uh, employees, resulting in the shutting of numerous programs, but you don't hear in the headlines uh, about the smaller agencies that are 
pushed to the brink, that are laying off people, that are closing down programs, that are gone entirely. Uh, you don't then, when, you, when a small or medium-sized uh, provider shuts down altogether, you don't necessarily notice until you were watching in advance the fact that everyone to whom they provided services rushes to the other larger providers who are also being stretched to the breaking point. Um, you know, I had some thought that maybe when LSSI made those layoffs, they're such a big and visible provider that there would be um, some consequences. And yet we seem to be continuing in this path. Catholic Charities is in pretty real trouble. Uh, I was just the other night with the head of CJE Senior Life, which is a very big, very significant provider uh, that basically he said they've got 30 days left in them. One thing that I worry people don't totally acknowledge is that we're talking about life and death here. We're not, we're not talking about um, something abstract. We're not talking about something theoretical. We're not talking about something where, oh, you know, we'll do it next year. It'll be okay eventually. We're talking about life and death. I want to give you an example. Uh, back in October, the Human Services Committee held a hearing in Carbondale. We had <clears throat> testimony from providers from across the southern seven most counties in the state. Uh, providers in, in, frankly, the poorest part of the state that have been absolutely decimated by this lack of a budget. And one of the county's public health department, in response to a really tragic spike in suicide that was accompanied by an increase in opioid uh, overdose, um, as well as high rates of alcoholism, had uh, set up a 24-7 suicide hotline that had been really successful. And Last October, they told us that as a result of the state's failure to properly fund the public health department, they were down to a couple days a week, eight hours a day. So what we're now telling people is even a lifeline in your darkest hour is only going to be there 16 hours a week. That's what we've been reduced to. So the, the sector is being um, harmed to an extraordinary extent. That results in the diminution of services, but it also results in a long-term consequence of the sector's ability to provide at all. So, you know, let's say that uh, we go back to Springfield in a day and a half and fix all this. The workers who've been laid off have, in many cases, gone off to do something else the organization leaders whose organizations no longer exist have in many, in many cases gone off to do something else. The infrastructure is being dismantled and once you do that there's a significant uh, time required to rebuild it and we're talking about um, a period of many many years during which the citizens who are most reliant upon government for whom government is most crucial uh, are going to be ill ill served because of this. Where does philanthropy fit into all of this, and what's the right partnership between the state and philanthropy and nonprofits? What does that look like, and whose responsibility is it to do what? Well, I really wish you hadn't asked what's the right partnership, because then the question would have been easy, because the answer right now is that the state is simply hoping that philanthropy will do everything uh, by disengaging from its obligation to be a partner. But that's, of course, not the right way to do it. That's simply the uh, unfortunate and unethical current reality. 
Um, the the right way to do it is reliant on a very, very open multi-directional flow of information. Uh, I think we get screwed up when the state as the provider of funds and maker of rules becomes very, very good at pushing information out and very, very bad at accepting information coming in. Uh, and I think that's an understandable reaction. That's sort of a, kind of a human instinct as a response to the kind of power dynamic, but it's not good and it doesn't help uh, in the mutual goal of providing the services for the shared constituents. And so I think if, if I could improve one thing that seems practically possible, in other words, not just create a giant mountain of $100 bills that could be used to solve the problem, um, but something more hopefully feasible, it would be to, to significantly improve the communication channels between the client advocates, the providers, and the state, so that decisions that are made on the state, on the state level are made with a truly comprehensive and useful um, input of all the information needed, and in collaboration with the partners who then in practice wind up doing most of the execution. People want a call to action. Uh, they want to know what they can do. What, what actions can people take to move the needle? Several things. Um, first of all, they need to communicate with their elected officials, so that means contact your state representative, your state senator, the speaker and senate president and governor. Um, it also means be really clear and specific about what you want. Um, if I get a phone call that says, hey Daniel, uh, pass a budget, I, I totally agree. I am glad to know that I have a constituent expressing that view but it doesn't really pressure me to take a particular type of action uh, because I'm, in my opinion, I'm already trying to enact a budget. Uh, so it's difficult sometimes to formulate specific demands because the situation seems so hopeless, but there are examples. For instance, uh, at the moment that we're recording this, the Senate has passed Senate Bill 2047, which would provide around $400 million of funding for human services. Uh, that's in the House. Um, you can call your representative or the leaders of the House and say, we want this bill passed. And you can call the governor and say, we want this bill signed. Um, more broadly, uh, if you have a view on what the shape of the final compromise should look like, and I don't mean a detailed budget, but I mean, you know, a, a statement like, hey, governor, drop the turnaround agenda and enact a budget right now. Or maybe, hey, legislature, cave to the governor and enact the turnaround agenda so we can get a budget right now. Uh, I think that uh, com uh, communications with that level of specificity are very important. The other thing I would say is that, as far as I can tell, the people of Illinois are divided into two categories. Those who are really in a visceral and direct way in a world that is affected by this perhaps they are recipients of services, perhaps they are a service provider, perhaps someone they love is one of those two things, uh, perhaps they are just directly engaged with state government in a way that many citizens aren't. People in that category are very upset. And then there's the other category of people who basically say, well, we've heard that there's something kind of 
ludicrous happening in Springfield and hey, you know, we don't really have a lot of faith in state government anyway and these guys are all kind of buffoons and too bad and okay, well, let's talk about something else. You know, people who are aware there's a problem but for whom the problem has not yet hit home directly and therefore who are not really actively engaged in uh, trying to pressure the system. For people who are in the first category but know someone in the second category, which is to say for all people in the first category, you have a tremendous opportunity to educate and form and explain the situation to people in your circle in that second category and move them into the first category. Every time someone moves from category two to category one, we get closer to a resolution. And uh, I, those of us who are in category one already uh, need to bring our friends with us. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's a pretty sad topic, and uh, I hope we don't have to discuss it with you again. But uh, we, we appreciate your time and all of the work that you're doing. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I also hope we don't have to discuss this again, but I look forward to having other happier conversations in the future. Thanks again to Daniel for joining us today. Follow Forefront social media channels as well as the hashtag ILBudgetNow to get the latest information on the Illinois state budget crisis. Be sure to subscribe to Forefront Radio on iTunes so you don't miss an episode, or find us via SoundCloud. If you like what you heard, send us a tweet at MyForefront.